Ahoy there, me hearties. This be Captain Silver Hook, and you're listening to the Two Old Pirates Podcast. Set sail for an open sea of stories, tales, and some really crazy stuff. I expect you to like and subscribe, lest you be walking the plank. <laughs> Welcome to Podcast 35 from the Two Old Pirates. I'm Eric. We have to start off with a new podcast. So Podcast 35 it is. We're going to have uh, two different things on here. The first thing is we're going to have a uh, Eric's True Story. I haven't brought one of those up in a while. So we're going to have Eric's True Story. And then we're also going to have Eric Ruins a Song, which I haven't done that in a while either. So this will be a twofer. You're going to go ahead and get uh, a 100% true story uh, that you're probably going to sit there and say, how did that even happen? Is that crazy? And then you'll get me ruining a song or two for you. So uh, I've already ruined Summer of 69 and I've already ruined uh, Imagine by John Lennon. So I'm going to ruin a couple more for you. It was probably about, I'm going to say about six or seven years ago. I, uh, happen, I happen to have a thyroid condition. It's a disease called Hashimoto's disease. And it's an autoimmune disease and there's nothing you can do about it. So you just have to continuously watch your, your blood work to see if anything spikes or goes too far down. So I have Hashimoto's. And because of that, I have to go and have my blood checked regularly. Well, my insurance had changed and I could not go to my doctor anymore to have it done at his own lab. So I'd have to go out to one of the other lab companies. I'm not going to say any names and throw any uh, companies under the bus. But if you'll bear with me, uh, you know, they told me I had to, I had to fast. And uh, since I'm a teacher, uh, they were closed on Saturdays and Sundays. The only day that I'd be able to come in is Monday through Friday. So I set it up through my doctor and through this lab uh, that the closest one it would be down the street and should not take very much time. And if I was there at 7.15 when they opened, uh, even though I had school at 8.15, they'd be able to go and draw the blood, send it over, and um, I'd be... I got all the, you know, the work in and uh, the doctor said, yeah, we're going to go ahead and check and see where, you know, all your levels are right now to see how you're feeling, see how you're doing physically. So um, it, it was a, I believe a Wednesday afternoon. And so my wife and I are in our suburban to go teach. And we, the three boys are in the back still, you know, sleeping after getting them into the car, you know, for school. And I said, I'll be back in about five minutes. That did not happen. I go into the lab and uh, I sign in and within two minutes they come and they say, uh, Mr. Wolf, can you come back this way? Sure, sure, sure. So I go, you know, to the back and uh, they have the flo all the phlebotomists there. There's three or four people working there t tapping you for your blood. So I sit down and the young man who's working there, I said, boy, you look kind of young to be working here. And he was saying, yeah, I got my phlebotomy certificate. Yeah, and we're just small talk. I'm not thinking that I've had my blood drawn numerous times for this disease. And uh, to make a long story short, um, he said, wow, you have a lot of things we need to check out. And I said, what do you mean? And he showed me the list that had been faxed over by the doctor and all these things had been checked. So I was all like, okay, well, whatever you need to do. You know, I'm figuring he has a certificate in phlebotomy. He knows what he's doing. I'm just the patient. So 
he sits me down. Of course, they pull the arm thing out, puts the arm down, ties it off and stuff. And he sticks a needle in. And now, granted, I've never liked needles. Never. But, you know, you kind of get used to this. You feel the little prick. And then you, uh, you know, you don't really look at the blood too much if you don't want to look at it, which I don't. And so, you know, I, you feel him putting the little bitty capsule in to draw the blood. And then I see him take it off. And then I see him put a label or, and then he puts it in the little bitty thing. And, then, and, you know, I wasn't counting, but I was like, man, that's a lot. Usually it's two vials, maybe three maybe three so i'm sitting there and i like look over and in the small area that you're supposed to put the vials there was more than three there was more than five there was more than ten he must know what he's doing uh i'm kind of a quiet person i don't raise a big stink but i was like wow that's a lot and he's all i know uh she asked for like 25 different things i'm like okay I was still feeling fine, about to, you know, ready for him to undo the the uh, uh, the wrap, put the Band-Aid on there, let me stand up, get out of there, go teach. Um, now this lab was inside of a hospital area. Um, and when he got done with the last one, I looked over and I saw that there was a huge number of these little tubes of you know about that big of blood about 25 of them and i knew there was something wrong because i was feeling kind of like my palms are kind of sweaty i felt kind of like flushed uh but i was all maybe i'm just tired or something um and i said how many did you take and he's all oh 25 because she wanted 25 things <laughs> So he took the thing off my arm, put the band-aid. He's all, how do you feel? And at that moment, I still felt normal. I still felt normal. He's all, okay, we're going to slowly stand you up. Um, I started to stand up and I said, I don't feel right. And that was it. That's the last thing I remember for quite a while. I don't know how much time went by. I do remember slightly waking up with a sharp pain in my middle back, the middle of my back. Didn't know what that was. Um, everything was very hazy, like I was in a dream. Um, in and out, in and out. My phone started going off in my pocket. Didn't know what to do. Couldn't reach for it. I was there was no, there was no energy. There was no uh, strength. Strength. There was nothing. I was just there, and not there. And uh, didn't know what was going on. Um, felt a lot of arms on me. Didn't know what that was about. I kind of opened my eyes a little bit. I saw that they had my phone and that um, one of the female phlebotomists, she was shaking her hand and talking into it saying, I don't know. I don't know, ma'am. I don't know. I looked in the corner and the phlebotomist who had been taking my blood, who had took my blood, he was in the corner, crouched down, shivering and crying, saying, I killed him. I killed him. This did not seem real, but in my mind, I was so in and out of it. I had no idea what was going on. Then I heard one of the women say, we can't get him to come around. Um, his blood pressure is way too low. It's way too low. We have to do something. 
I wasn't really scared. I was more like, what the hell's going on? The next thing I know, my wife is in the room. She's holding my hand. She's asking what happened to him. The women working there are saying, I don't know. I don't know. But his blood pressure is way too low. He He's not coming out. He's not, he's not waking up. And I wasn't afraid. I didn't know what was going on. I knew something really was wrong. But um, the next thing I know is I hear, sir, can you talk to me? Can you see me? I was so tired. I was so weak. I couldn't form words. That's That was probably the scariest part is that I could hear partial things, but I couldn't even move my lips. I couldn't talk. And that scared me a little bit. Um, so the next thing I know, I'm picked up by two men and I'm laid out on what I found out later was a stretcher and they had called the paramedics and the paramedics were right there in the hospital wing. And so they drove around with an actual ambulance because they didn't know what had happened. They thought, oh, somebody just fainted or something like that. But then when they saw the state that I was in, they're like, you know, we've got to take him to the emergency room. So they put me on this cart. My wife didn't know what to do. She called her mom. The, she didn't want to scare the boys. And so her mom came by and picked up the boys out of the server and said, hey, your dad's going to be here a little bit longer. You know, she, she BSed the, the grandkids. And then she drove them out to school while my wife stayed by with me. And they carted me down the hall of the hospital that was attached to this lab and into the emergency room where I was there unconscious for a while. And then they uh, evidently gave me two or three bags of saline solution. And they got my blood pressure to come back up. And within about two or three hours after that, uh, whatever had happened to me, I was feeling better. And they allowed me to be discharged uh, about four hours after this occurred. So I would say going on noonish, I was allowed to go home. But they said that what scared them was that when I dropped... Uh, I was about to slide out of the seat and that's why I had a bruise across my back for about three weeks is that they, instead of letting me fall out and laying me on the ground so that the blood flow would be normal, they, the phlebotomists there at this lab were so scared about what was happening that they were shoving me back into the chair to keep me sitting up because I was slumping so bad and trying to slide out of the, out of the chair and that caused a real big bruise on my back. And so it's not the greatest story ever. It is 100% true. And it's not like I just fainted and got back up. Um, I, nor I have normal blood pressure, but when it dropped that low, I literally couldn't wake up. I, I, I was out of it. So it wasn't like I just should have ate a big breakfast or something like that. Something occurred. And I heard that that young man who was a phlebotomist, he quit that day. Uh, the reason why I know that is about, I want to say about two years later, the same thing kind of happened and I had to go back to that lab. And when I walked in, and this is the truth, this is the truth, you can't make this stuff up. I signed in and the lady working there, uh, as I went to go sit down, I saw her pick up the clipboard and I guess she was going to write in when it'd be my time or something. And she looked back at me and she's all, are you Eric DeWolf? And I was all... Yeah. And she turned around and she closed the the sliding glass doors at the reception area. She went to the back 
behind her and there's a woman on a computer and she tapped her on the shoulder and she pointed out at me. I'm all like, dude, did I win a million dollars or something? What the heck's going on? Am I popular or something? And so to make a long story short, what happened was uh, it was like a it was like a known thing at that lab of that day, what happened, how many people were affected psychologically with seeing me that way. You know, most people, boom, you get, but this guy had screwed up and taken so much blood that I kind of crashed. And uh, because of it, it forced him to quit and it caused the two other women uh, to have nightmares. That And I found all this out after I, they called me back up to the thing and they're like, so you're the guy two years ago who they thought almost died here and stuff. And I was like, oh my God. how do you know that? And they're like, oh, everybody around this lab knows about that. That's like the most famous story. And I was all like, wait, I made, I'm famous for, for you guys thinking I died when basically you took too much blood and I uh, kind of crashed. And they're like, yeah, it, it, it's like, you're him. I'm like, yeah, do you want an autograph or something? So I never got anything out of it. And there was people that said that I should have sued them and stuff. And it, it didn't really matter. It wasn't that big of a deal and stuff. I was never really, I wasn't harmed in any way. But it did scare my wife and it did scare uh, me afterwards when I found out all the different things. My back hurt like a bitch for, for a long time. Uh, but yeah, that's a 100% true story of the time that a lab almost killed me. Almost. Now I'd like to switch gears to ruining a song. So what should I do for a third time? And then I sat there and thought, hold on, there's two songs that fit the same mold. And they're both beloved songs. They're both big hits. So I said, I'll do a two for one on the songs. I'll ruin two songs. So, in 1983, there was a song that came out by a band that was getting more and more popular every single album. And their lead singer and lead songwriter was getting a pretty big head, and he would eventually go solo and make millions and millions and millions of dollars. And they were a band called The Police. They weren't really a punk band from the late 70s. They were like post-punk. They had a lot of good songs. But the thing that broke them wide open to the uh, to everyone was in 1983, they released a song called Every Breath You Take. And that song, over the last 37 years, has been played at thousands and thousands and thousands of weddings and parties. And it's a very, very romantic song for a lot of people about how every breath you take, I'm there for you. Uh, the problem is, it's not about that at all it's not a romantic song and if you listen to the lyrics which i'm sure most of you have it's a stalker song it's an obsessive love song um the person in the song is singing to his ex-lover that every breath you take every move you make i'll be watching you and the lead singer of the police sting who wrote this song said he never understood how people thought it was a romantic song he said I hear it on the radio and I'm like, do people really understand the dark area that I wrote this from? A man who simply will not give up on his ex-lover. I mean, he's watching her all the time. He's trailing her. You know, any move she makes, I'll be watching you. So it's a very deep, dark, obsessive, um, scary type song about obsession. And 
So it has nothing to do with romance. So if that was your song with your boyfriend, that was your song with your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, whatever, understand that it is not a song about romance whatsoever. It's a song about total obsess obsessiveness and not leaving someone alone uh, and not letting it go. You can't let it go. So that spins me into the second one. And I was all like, wow, this other song is remarkably the same. And there's a song that came out called You're Beautiful by James Blunt. I'm not going to sing it because I'm not a good singer. You're beautiful. See, see what I'm saying? So You're Beautiful came out and boom, platinum. Top 10 hit. I think it was a top five hit. And everybody fell in love with the song. And it was the new Every Breath You Take. People were playing it at weddings and at parties and dedicating it to themselves and making, you know, I love you so much and you're beautiful. You're so beautiful. <clears throat> James Blunt, who wrote the song, said this was about an inebriated, drunk man um, on a subway, in, in the subways, uh, staring at a beautiful woman and basically obsessing over her and saying things like she was with another man but I won't lose sleep on that because I've got a plan so you're beautiful at James Blunt is written in the same tone as every breath you take the only difference is one person had a relationship and can't let it go the other person has never even met that person but is going to stalk them. And so, I saw your face in the crowd. Okay, it's a person who's fixated on somebody else. So, whether it's the relationship has happened or has not happened, in both cases, you're beautiful and every breath you take is a person who's obsessed with someone else. And they're not just like admiring someone like, wow, she's pretty, or blah, blah. These two men in these two songs are obsessive and possibly criminal in what they're doing. Now, the, the guy in You're Beautiful, yeah, you might, we might sit there and say he's just a drunk and stuff, but when he says, I have a plan, that means he might be waiting for her to be alone sometime and then he might do something. Now, that sounds dark. What kind of plan does he have? Is he going to go over and woo her away? And remember, he's drunk on the subway when he sees her. So I don't think his best intentions are there. And then of course, you know, every breath you take, we, you know, it's just a, it's an amazingly great song until you read the lyrics and you see how deep and dark it is. So I hope that I ruin those two songs for you. And every single time that every breath you take comes on, you'll think that's a stalker song, obsessive. Like all the scary movies we talk about and stuff, somebody outside your window and stuff. Uh, and you're beautiful. Is about somebody checking you out on a subway or on a bus or on a train or at work in the store. And they're thinking, maybe I could snatch that person. Very, very dark songs. So I hope I ruined those two for you. So once again, this is Podcast 35. We passed the 400 mark. We're marching towards 500. I hope that you'll find people to subscribe to this channel. I hope that you'll give us a listen. I hope that you'll give us a comment. And that you will like what we have to say. Tool Pirates are here. It's 2021. We're coming strong. I love you all. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us. And I can't wait to make my next podcast.